What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Again, M&A talk just kind of coming across the tape here. Boeing in talks to buy supplier Spirit Aerosystems. Spirit Aerosystems stock is higher. Boeing a little bit lower here. Uh, but, you know, one could argue this is a transaction that probably needs to happen for Boeing to address some of their concerns. Well, let's bring on uh, uh, George Ferguson. George Ferguson covers the aerospace uh, and airlines of business for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, George, tell us why Boeing would want to do this transaction. Uh, good morning, Paul. Quality control. It's absolutely quality control. They must be looking inside Spirit. I know they've been looking inside Spirit for months. Um, my guess is they've looked inside and they just feel like they can't control quality well enough as an outsider. They used to own Spirit, not, not as it looks exactly now, but they used to own you know, those, those facilities. Uh, it makes uh, you know, a majority of the 737 fuselage. It makes the front portion of the 787 two extremely important products. I think they've looked inside and they said, we can't control quality well enough from the outside. We've got to buy this thing. Do we trust Again. Boeing to have the kind of quality control that Spirit needs? Boeing doesn't have a choice. Boeing's got to get quality control or they got a major problem on their hands. And so uh, I guess I think as an owner, uh, I think it is the path, probably a, a good path forward. Uh, I, I do think they will get the quality uh, issues in hand, but it's going to take some time. Uh, but they have to; they have, they have no choice. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, the stock of Boeing, pretty much unchanged on the the news here. If I think if I were an investor in Boeing, I would think I may or may not, it may or may not make financial sense to own this Spirit thing, but I would say it's probably the best way to move forward here. And, and I, when you talk to investors, George, yeah. how did did they think that way? Uh, you know, I, I think investors. You know, I don't know that they, you could say they all monolithically think that way. Um, I think if there if there could have been a way to keep it outside, not have to buy it, um, uh, you know, I, I think they, that probably would have pleased people more. I mean, there will be an unwinding required in this transaction, right? So Airbus is A320. Some of the components are made Spirit. I'm, I'm imagining that Airbus is not going to be uh, interested in having, you know, Boeing as a subcontractor on their airplane, um, you know, and their their other defense products, made, you know, for Lockheed and things like that. It's going to require some work to, I think, to unwind this thing a little bit uh, in order to, to, you know, in order to pull it inside of Boeing. Probably energy you would prefer not Boeing to spend. But again, I think yep. it, it's their most important products are flowing through Spirit, and Spirit's been a source of the problems in some of those mm -hmm. products lately. And if Boeing is going to much higher production rates, which is where they're gonna generate the cash flow they need, the profitability they need, 
they've got to stabilize production. And I think they're, you know, they must have looked at it and said, we got to own it. And so if you're an investor, I think you're uh, okay. Yeah, it's the way forward. I'd rather not have taken this path, but it's the way forward. Um, this is a leading question and it could be very wrong, but does this tell us anything about how bad things are at Spirit, that this is the option? I think it does. Again, so how bad are things at Spirit? <laughs> to me, it sounds like it's so bad they got to buy it. Um, <laughs> and I think that's bad, right? If you're if you're Boeing, you do want to preserve cash, right? You, you don't want to go make an acquisition. You got plenty of other things to manage right now. But uh, I think it means that, yes, the, the turnover at Spirit's been bad. Uh, the quality control, I think that's led to the quality control problems. You want to have your hand in how those line workers are being managed, how the quality control is being handled. Um, yeah, I think it means it was really bad at Spirit. All right, the shares of Spirit Aerosystems, SPR is the ticker for your Bloomberg terminal. Up 14% uh, year to date trading has resumed here. So uh, obviously uh, the market signing pretty high probability that something will get done here. So George, just looking at Boeing holistically, you know, as you've told us in the past, you know, this is a scale business. You got to make as many planes as you can for that over that fixed cost base you have. Talk to us about the production goals. Or talk to us where they are in production today and where do they want to get to? And do you think that's a reasonable uh, glide path? Uh, so they are at 38 today. Although they'll tell you, even though their their suppliers are building at 38 and delivering the Boeing at 38, Boeing's not putting 38 out. So I I don't know. They're somewhere between. They're somewhere in the high 30s. I'd say depends what month it is. That, uh, that that's on know, a per month basis, be, just in general. Uh, sorry, and that's on the 737. Yep, that's their most important product. Uh, on the 787, you know, we're in in the I think five is six ish area right now. Uh, uh, on 737, uh, you know, they've got goals to be into the 50s. They've, um, and at the end of the last expansion phase before the pandemic, before the max uh, crashes and groundings, you know, they, they were they were in the 60s. They're not going to go wow. to the 60s. Airbus is, you know, for the 737, Airbus is talking about going to 75 for the A320. So I think if you and I were inside the Boeing management meetings and they told you where they really wanted to go, they want to be up there near um, near Airbus, mm -hmm. you know, taking a 50-50 complement of this market. Is that the right place to go? Yes. Are they they're talking mid-decade? Yes. Probably pulling spirit inside. Timing probably had a lot to do with that too. They thought, look, how can we stabilize this the fastest because we don't want to keep giving away share to Airbus. Going to Spirit, back to Spirit just for one second. We're also reporting that Spirit is exploring strategic options. So that leads me to believe that if the Boeing thing doesn't happen, they're still in deep trouble and they got to get a buyer or do something else. What would be plan B? For Spirit? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, when we look at Spirit, Spirit's, uh, you, know, you know, Spirit has, has a bunch of debt coming due. The capital markets have, haven't loved them as much. I think they've, they, you know, that some of the, the debt they've placed has been up in the 9%-ish levels. I think the capital markets, the debt capital markets especially, have looked at the Boeing relationship and that's given them more comfort probably to give them rates that perhaps were better than what Spirit uh, should have got. I think it, frankly, would be strategic options, you know, away from Boeing are really typical because, again, some, you know, some 50, 60, I'm talking off the cuff here, I'd have to go pull the exact number of their revenues flow through Boeing. 
what what I'm guessing and that's that, that strategic comment is that spirit is probably looking at how they would spin off portions of the business that are not Boeing focused so that, mm -hmm. you know, so that it could continue, you know, to serve those customers. Like I said, Airbus, Lockheed, other defense uh, companies have products that are being built by spirit. I think they're probably looking at ways to continue to service them in an entity that would be outside uh, of Boeing. You know, the, the, the fuselage building business, which is largely what Spirit does, isn't one of the great money makers in the industry. And, you know, I, we've seen it go to some, uh, you know, to, to go offshore. We, you know, the Koreans want to be in this business. The Japanese are in this business. The Chinese are in this business. There's a lot of competition in that space. And so I think it makes it a really hard part of the business to be in to make very good returns. Um, and, and look, it's it's a space, the fuselage building space that I think Airbus has kept more inside because again, they want to control the quality. So, uh, you know, I, I guess that's a, lot, a long way of saying, I don't know that options as a complete entity away from Boeing, I don't know the great ones exist and I don't see that. My guess is they're trying to spin parts of it away. All right, George, thanks so much for joining us on short notice. Really appreciate it. George Ferguson, he covers the airspace uh, business as well as the airlines, the whole uh, complex over there, including the defense manufacturers. Uh, again, uh, Wall Street Journal first reported, now Bloomberg News uh, matching uh, that uh, Boeing is in talks to acquire Spirit Aerosystems Holdings. SPR is the ticker. Uh, Spirit is, the stock is up 15.5% today right now. Uh, so suggesting that the market believes that there is something there. And as George was suggesting, Alex, it's probably something they got to do. George was awesome. Yeah. Like that was great. That yeah. was great perspective, uh, et cetera. Yeah, and I thought that it was really interesting that it's the fuselage business. So if you can spin off other stuff, maybe that's the profitable moneymaker. You can still keep the contracts with Airbus and Boeing, but it's the fuselage business. Like that's the part that Boeing just has to basically absorb and, 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 and suck up within its, within its company. Um, we'll see if that works. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. New York Community Bank down at 20%. All right, you know the story. Um, it has discovered, quote, material weaknesses in how it tracks loan risks. They wrote down the value of the company it acquired years ago and replaced its leadership to help grapple with the turmoil. There was a theory that maybe this kind of risk was idiosyncratic. They are one of the big exposures to rent control departments here in New York City that has been hurt uh, by a revamp of some of those rent control laws. So when there's a banking potential crisis, we go to one guy, Herman Chan. <laughs> Bloomberg Intelligence uh, Senior Analyst for U.S. Regional Banks. Uh, Herman, can we still call this idiosyncratic? It, it is a good question. I think it's the appropriate question. What's idiosyncratic is you mentioned the exposures to commercial real estate, specifically apartment lending and office. Um, but what's also idiosyncratic is that it recently cleared the $100 billion asset mark, which ushers in higher capital, liquidity, regulatory uh, issues for the bank. And what's 
happening in, in our view is that it's easy to reach the big leagues of $100 billion. It, it looks like it's harder to stay there, right? And what we're seeing is that they're, they're facing growing pains and becoming such a bigger company. And these inter, lack of uh, material weakness and internal controls just reflects that. Change in management, is that... That usually doesn't look good. Right. Uh, I guess that's contributing to the stock here today, but tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So um, a, a few years back, uh, the, the the bank acquired another institution called Flagstar Bank, and the CEO of Flagstar Bank is now the CEO of NYCB. Um, he was named the executive chairman uh, back in, earlier in February uh, once um, these issues uh, became apparent, and it looks like um, the, the former CEO just has been sidelined because of uh, uh, the, the need for new management. Um, okay, so what's interesting is that if we rewind to when they were able to buy, was a signature? Uh, right, correct. Some signature assets, mm-hmm. right? It was like, oh, look, yep. yay, they were the savior, right. et cetera. Is that going to, are regulators going to rethink what being a bank savior is in that circumstance? Like, yeah. yeah, that's a great question. And I think it, it really uh, poses a different question. It was New York community, the right bank to acquire the signature assets and deposits. Um, if we knew, if the regulators should have known that New York community wasn't really up to snuff, up to speed on a number of these internal issues, capital issues, liquidity issues, um, and, and reserve issues. So, uh, do, does uh, do the regulators need to be more uh, cognizant of? Of what they're doing and, and anointing a potential savior, and a, a year later, now this bank is in the crosshairs. What the, one of the lessons I take away from this story is, I think, a basic fundamental investing lesson, which is kind of concentration risk. Look right. at the company. Yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. had so much exposure mm-hmm. to this type of loan class, mm-hmm. i.e., loans to rent-controlled apartments. Right. That presents a whole level of risk, i.e. they're not diversified in their mm-hmm. portfolio as much as maybe they sh- we would like. Mm-hmm. But I guess if you were an investor in NYCB, you knew that going in, right? Yes, you, you knew that going in, that this was the bank that has historically focused on the uh, rent-regulated apartment lending uh, sector. They're, they're the big kahuna in this niche business, and they've been doing it for decades. So that's not new. Uh, and you should have known that uh, a few years back when, when New York uh, imposed tougher rent regulations that this was going to hurt their their main business. So it's taken a few years well, for this to, to really bore itself out. Also, Maybe an investor should have known, but the company also should have known. Like right. that part couldn't have come as a surprise from that end. No, but their but, risk and controls, that's a but, real problem. It, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. now they're trying to do, what is this, uh, risk, synthetic risk, something, something? Like right. what are they trying to do? <laughs> so basically they're Anything doing synthetic this. synthetic sounds not yes. great, but this, what, what do uh, I know? synthetic uh, derivative transaction to help uh, reduce their their loan exposures and improve their capital. So it's one uh, way to get rid of or improve their capital without actually selling the loans. All right, for our listeners and uh, viewers that are not exposed to New York rent-controlled real estate, talk to us about the regional banks in general. What's Mm -hmm. kind of the feeling when you talk to investors today? Are they warming up to this sector? I know it's bounced Mm -hmm. off that October low. Right. But I'm not sure if that's a market bounce or people are saying, all right, I think I've seen the worst in regional banks. it's it's an interesting question. Uh, you're right that they they bounce, but uh, 
now a number of folks in the market are saying potentially no rate uh, cuts this year, which uh, would be viewed as negative for for the regional banks, uh, just because deposit costs have, have risen. Uh, you yeah, need but no lower... rate cuts because the economy is good and accelerating. Right. So no, wouldn't that be good? There, there's two things that that weigh on that. Number one, there's not a lot of loan growth, and rate cuts would improve loan demand. And number two. Uh, Elevated interest rates is bad for credit quality and being able to refinance the existing loans and, and the decline in value in, in areas like office commercial real estate could hamper banks' credit quality. So where are we on that commercial real estate risk? I kind of feel like it's a time bomb still out there. Right. And at any time over the next two or three or four years, mm-hmm. maybe multiple times over that time frame, right. we're going to have Bank A or group of banks that are going to call out CRE as a reason right. why they really missed or they have to really up their reserves or something yeah. like that. Where are we on that? Yeah, uh, that that continues to play out. Uh, we, we saw that with your community in the fourth quarter. We'd expect more of that um, going ahead in the coming quarters. Um, that being said, the, the risk in our view is really relegated to the smaller banking institutions. We just looked at some data, which I think was pretty interesting since the uh, the 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 um, COVID era and starting in 2019, the top 25 U.S. banks have grown their commercial real estate loans by only two percent, okay. and then the lar- the smallest banks have grown their commercial real estate by 43 percent. So really? that shows me that really the risk is 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 comprised largely in the smaller bank cohort. That's interesting. Um, so let me ask a question going back to the Fed cut. So if we don't get mm-hmm. A cut mm. for this year. Let's just pretend game out. Did that just come with Torsten or other people? No, it's just Torsten, I think. <laughs> I, I think a couple of weeks ago, people were talking about the worry that we may have to have another hike because inflation was reaccelerating. But this is maybe the first I've heard of no cuts at all. So if that happens and there's no cuts, who's going to be under pressure? I mean, you, you mentioned the fact mm-hmm. that uh, a cut would help loan demand. So who's already seeing mm-hmm. sketchy loan demand? Right. So that that's an industry phenomenon where, where we're not seeing loan growth across the, the group. Um, the Fed puts out weekly data and it shows that loans are, are down, you know, quarter to date in commercial loans. So that's a big driver of, of the regional bank, uh, the large regional bank balance sheet. So that's hampered. Um, it's going to affect banks like probably New York community the most because any potential rate cuts would view as a, a savior for them because yeah. then the, their their borrowers could refinance at lower rates. All right, Herman, thanks so much for joining us. Herman Chan, Senior Analyst for the Banks, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Radio Show. We bring you great analysis with all our Bloomberg Intelligence folks, 2,000 uh, companies, 130 industries. You want to know about it. 
they cover it. We also like to give you a perspective of how to invest on a broader level, particularly on a day where the data might point to maybe we're going to get some Fed cuts. But then Taurus and Slack of Apollo said, you're not going to get any cuts this year uh, because the economy is just actually accelerating. Things are too strong. So Anna Rathburn joins us now. She is CIO at CBiz Investment Advisory Services. Anna, do you agree with Taurus and Slock maybe? Or what's the case for no cuts at all this year? I don't know about no cuts, but I think it's certainly difficult for the Fed to raise rates at this time, um, or at least looking out into 2024. And it's not just the inflation, it's their target of 2%. It has been really sticky. Sticky doesn't mean it's not falling. Sticky means it's falling very slowly and that it's very, very bumpy. So either the Fed is going to have to accept a a higher than 2% inflation rate and call it maybe the momentum is heading down and start to normalize rates, or they may have to be higher for longer. That may be one cut, maybe two cuts, maybe no cuts. But I think no cuts is, is uh, that's a pretty hawkish view. <laughs> oh, he's, <clears throat> he's certainly got uh, some airtime, if nothing else today. Um, <laughs> Anna, what do you think about this uh, kind of soft landing uh, scenario that seems to be out there? People kind of feel like, Maybe the Fed's doing a pretty good job here negotiating a soft landing. Do you buy into that? Well, um, I think you have to look at the underlying um, risks that are in the markets. I mean, there's the labor market, you know, weakness in the fringes that we've seen. And this is sort of like, you know, what would a recession look like if we didn't have external shocks? If you think about the, the last three recessions that we had, they all came from crazy external shocks. How often do you have a pandemic? How do you often do you have a global financial crisis? Um, maybe there's a tech bubble. I don't know. Depends on who you ask. But that was in the late 90s. Um, these are these are sort of triggered by outside factors. If you have a normal economic cycle where you really have like a natural boom and bust, you're going to see weakness around the fringes. And I think we're starting to see that and in the consumers labor market as well as delinquency rates, et cetera. And you're starting to see some cracks in the markets, especially mm -hmm. with New York uh, Community Bank, right? I mean, that was news that came out. We started to see some cracks about a year ago. It's almost a one-year anniversary. Um, and here we are in 2024 talking about banks again. So does that would that be a call then to sell the rally in small caps? Because what you're describing is really great for large cap companies and really bad for the small guys. Well, I mean, I think the small caps have been telling us that it's been pretty uncertain. Because but they've outperformed, the, Anna. In the short term, they have outperformed. Yes, yes. So short term, they've outperformed because the yields came down, right? So if we're talking about a higher for longer scenario, I mean, look at the 10-year today. It's fall, it's falling uh, pretty dramatically, and yesterday as well. I mean, small caps tend to like these things. But if we're talking about a higher for longer, we're talking about a pretty volatile rate environment where it can definitely go back up. And when it goes back up, it sort of supports that higher for longer narrative. And that's not as friendly for small stocks. How about on the fixed income side here? I'm looking at, you know, just the two-year treasury, for example. It's pulling back today off of seven basis points. But, you know, you're still getting north of 4.5% for a two-year. How do you kind of advise your clients, I think, about the fixed income space? Well, so depending on why you're in, uh, investing in fixed income, I think that that reason is very important. Look, I mean, yield is very, very attractive. And so even if you have some 
um, sell off on and, and some headwind on the price. There's enough yield there to cushion some of that blow so that we're not talking about the same environment as before the Fed started to raise rates. Right. So we're, we're less sensitive to price changes. Um, so we do invest for yield, especially on the shorter end. And we are keeping duration a little bit on the shorter side uh, because of some of the volatility that we were expecting on the longer end of the curve. So is that a steepener trade then? Um, yes. I mean, we're not. Paul doesn't bonds like that. He doesn't like to talk about steepeners. <laughs> uh, but because the steepener trade has been real rough. Oh, yes, it has. And I think that's because every time the Fed comes out and says, well, you know, we uh, we're thinking about cutting rates. Um, we're thinking about doing this or that. I think the markets interpret that to be, OK, the Fed is going to be dovish and the financial conditions loosen, and then it tightens again. I think it's that volatility that's very hard to stomach for some of our investors. So keeping duration a little bit on the shorter side to minimize some of that price impact is sort of our goal. How about on, in, in the credit space here? Should I be willing to go out there and maybe take some credit risk in, in an effort to maybe goose up my, my yield here? Um, so. We're talking about credit spreads or are we talking about treasury yields? Because the treasury yields are very, very attractive. And of course, you put the credit spreads on top of that, it's even more attractive. But we are a little bit more careful on credit, um, especially on high yield. I believe our high yield is at, at, at the lowest that we're in terms of percentage that willing to go. It is still a very attractive yield. Again, there's some um, a cushion for some of the price volatility, but when high yield uh, spread widens that widens pretty quickly there's a big price action there on the negative side that we don't necessarily want to participate in so we're staying on the investment grade, uh, grade credit as we all know that market has been very very healthy in terms of new issuance um, in terms of demand and so we are there at the moment i can't tell you that we'll be there next month um but that for certainly for now um we've been clipping very nice coupon on that uh, on that front okay so that's a good point because I, so you're you're in the investment grade market, but that's for the coupon in the treasury market. Mm -hmm. Are you there for price appreciation or are you there for the coupon? We're there for the coupon because, again, coupon. rates are so volatile uh, that we sort of have to ignore it as noise at the, for the time being. And we're, we're there to clip the coupon. So we were there for, um, for a while now, especially after, uh, let's say, in 2023, about halfway into 2023, we increased duration, we ex uh, increased our fixed income exposure um, to participate on that yield. And a lot of our clients are actually looking for that yield, so that made sense for us. So, Anna, the issue here is for, for a lot of folks is, what is our Federal Reserve going to do? And, you know, again, there's a lot of competing calls out there, but overall, where do you think the risk profile for this market is? Do you think people are willing to take risk when you, when you talk to your clients, or are they a little bit more risk adverse? Um, it, it's mixed. So there's definitely FOMO, um, but yeah, there, yeah. there are people who, especially small business owners, they see some of the, you know, some of them see strength, some of them definitely see weaknesses, and a lot of them tell us that this market doesn't make sense to them. So what is priced into the markets right now is, a lot of optimism, including scenario where Fed starts to cut. And if that doesn't materialize, I think that the markets may be in for a surprise. And a lot of our clients are definitely thinking in that way. The valuations, you know, the numbers don't sit very well with them. Um, so certainly there's some fear, but, you know, there's always a, a yeah. push and pull between FOMO and fear, right? 
Yeah. Um, I definitely have some FOMO, but I'm also like <laughs> soup cans under my bed kind of gal. So uh, Anna, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Anna Rathburn, CIO at CBiz Investment Advisory Services. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We did see call a spike once we got the ISM and the UMish in the S&P. Like, I get we're only up one-tenth of one percent and definitely buying coming into the front end. It's like, buy everything. It's okay. Yeah. The Fed's going to cut. Not <laughs> at all what Torsten Slock was saying. No, no. Torsten Slock, we just had Torsten Slock on saying the economy's better than expected. Well, these numbers don't show that. They don't. So no. let's kind of understand what's going on. Uh, Tim Fiore is chair of the Institute for Supply Management. So he's the ISM guy. So he does all the stuff. He does all the surveys. He knows the things. And just to recap, ISM manufacturing coming in light at 47.8. Uh, the new orders, though, slipping below 50. All right, Tim, what happened? What's going on? So, Alex, it was actually a pretty good month. So what's, what's actually happening on the number side is seasonal adjustment factors. So we got a huge benefit in January from seasonal factors, and we got a huge de deduct in February from seasonal factors. If you look at the raw numbers, we're actually positive in February compared to January, which you would normally expect to see anyway. So overall, you know, I, I go I go through the ten sub indexes, I categorize them as positive, negative, or mixed for the month, and I determined all of the the sub indexes were positive for the month. So let me let me support this whole thing on the demand side because the new order number is the one that's going to really flash out at people. By far, the majority of our, our, our comments around softening demand is decreased in half. So m many fewer panelists are commenting about softer orders, which is a positive thing. Our sentiment around future demand is still running at about two to one. Uh, you know, we peaked at 10 or 12 to one, you know, many, many months ago. But two to one still says we have a predominant amount of people saying that things in the, in the future are going to get better. You know, I've been tracking the percent of respondents that are below 50 industry sectors and the ones that are below 45, which is a real warning sign. So I think last month under 45, we were 27 back in January, 27% of manufacturing was contracting at 45 or less. This month it's 1%. Wow. And then uh, on the overall contraction under 50, last month was in the range of 65. This month we're in the range of 40. So overall we're moving in the right direction. This is gonna be a slow recovery. I think the month of February indicated that yes, January was a pivot month. We're starting to grow again. The headline number isn't showing that, but the detail underneath supports it for sure. So, uh, so I think demand is coming back for sure, especially with the raw number being up. Okay, so how about, so Tim, for us folks that just kind of look at the headline number, when, when am I gonna see a ISM manufacturing number north of 50? When do you think we're gonna see that and see a little bit of growth in the manufacturing economy? I, I think it's very possible in March. Oh, okay. Uh, very, I've been saying that for the last three, four months. It's very possible that we could see it over 50 in March. Uh, you, know, we, you know, the seasonal factors are an interesting thing. I'm a big believer in seasonal factors, but we had three years of no seasonality. And, and those three years are now factoring into our seasonal adjustment factors. You know, we had, for instance, on the new order side, we actually upped the January new order number up 4.2 points in January, and we're now deducting 4.3. So there's some real volatility going in here because of what ha happened in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. These are carryover effects. But so you know, look at both elements, look at the seasonal factor, look at the non-seasonal factor. We're definitely heading in the right direction. And I, I think the other thing here is on the production side, we again were generally stable to the prior month. So revenue uh, continues to be stable, which is good. 
We continue to take headcount out to match the future projections, at least within the next six months. We're running at about a one-to-one -one higher to force manage ratio with half of the force managed activity being layoffs. So people are a little bit more urgent in eliminating the headcount compared, compared to where they were in September, October. Yeah, I so think that's all positive. And then for the first time in many, many yeah. months, I think 16, the supply base is now stiffening up. For the first time in many months, we've now gone to an environment where the suppliers are struggling to deliver. So that's all positive. It means demand is aggregating at the lowest level, and we're now starting to feel the impacts of it. So this is why we love having Tim on, because you look at the headline number yeah, and we're all like, uh-oh, this isn't good here. Oh, and, and, and then we, and we get the idea and, and we get the real data behind those numbers. So maybe when Torsten Slock says the economy is better than expected, maybe that's true. Tim, I know you're not an economist or a Fed official or Torsten Slock, but is the economy better than we think? Well, I, I think, Alex, you and I have talked about this for many months now, back in the August timeframe. I think in September, I, I came out with the declaration, I think we're in the trough. And I think we've been in the trough since yeah. August. We, and the, the thing I didn't have any insight into is when are we going to climb out of it? Then we did our forecast back in December before Chairman Powell released his predictions on 2024. The most important one being I'm, I'm pretty much going to cap out increases. And then in tw by the time we get to 2026 sometime, I might get to the, get to the 2%. So at that point, we already had a very positive forecast for 2024, and that just provided really good tailwinds to help us through. And then, you know, last month I said, I think we've now started to climb out of the trough, and I think this month supports that. It's unfortunate that the seasonal factors are so fluid here, but that will all stabilize. I, you know, March and, and April are really strong manufacturing months. We probably will have significant seasonal factors to overcome. I think. Like I said, we're not on a huge ramp up here in terms of expansion. It's going to be slow and gradual, but we're going to be expanding nonetheless. So I, I think we'll probably break, break the 50 mark in, in March, April for sure. Hey, Tim, any particular industry out there leading the way, or is there any industry kind of holding back this U.S. manufacturing? Yeah, thanks, Paul. So, I mean, the, the one I've been watching for three years now is chemical products coming back to an expansion mode because they support the other 17 industry sectors. Ah. Chemical products is positive. It's expanding at about a 51, 52 in the month of February for the first time in many, many months. Hmm. But we've had five or six months of improvement in chemical products. So that just continues to support the story. And then also in the month of February, fabricated uh, metal products, which is another feeding industry sector. They generally don't sell anything direct to the consumer themselves. They sell it to other companies that then convert it and sell it. That's our strong. That's one of our strongest industry sectors for the month of February two in the positive territory. I think the number was 5152. Right. So two of the big feeder industry sectors that support growth overall are in the positive territory. I think that's that's a very good sign. Yeah. Transportation has gotten a little bit weaker than it has been. We're still expanding at a 50 and some change, okay. Food and beverage is contracting. It's probably of our big six industries that, that we follow. It's the one that's probably the weakest, but Right. I've, I've come to learn that there's a real seasonal factor in the food and beverage industry, and we're at the bottom end of that seasonal factor now. Yep. They did really well in Q4. They've done really weakly in January and February. They expected to. Uh, that's our number three industry sector. So I, I would expect by the time we hit April, that's going to come out okay. of the, it's going to pass 50 and move on. And that supports the whole PMI expansion over 50 in the March, April time. Yep. Hey, Tim, thanks so much. You know what? I'm going to give you an unsolicited room raider here. I mean, your room raider in the background, it's fine. But the fact is, you're in Miami, Tim. You should have, <laughs> we should have the background be like the ocean or 
your yacht on the intercoastal waterway. So if you could work on that, that, that'd be great. It's, it's even better. I'm in Jupiter. I'm in oh, Jupiter there you go. That's, That's what better. I'm talking about. Uh, golf course then. Tim Fiore, thanks so much for joining <laughs> us. Chairman of the Manufacturing Business Survey for the Institute for Supply Management. Again, uh, headline numbers not looking so great, but if you go under the, uh, the surface, uh, Tim's suggesting uh, there's some strength out there. So I appreciate his time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's get back to some of the eco data at the top of the 10. Uh, University of Michigan sentiment, the final read for February coming in a bit lighter, current conditions revised lower as well, uh, and expectations revised lower as well. Um, we want to get to the bottom of it. Joanne Shu, University of Michigan Surveys of Consumers Director, joins us now. The revision lower, Joanne, what happened there? The, you know, essentially it edged down just a little bit. It was not much of a change at all. Um, and essentially we should interpret this as, as moving sideways between January and February. Essentially consumers haven't really noticed any material changes in the state of the economy um, since the start of the year. Um, and, and that comes through in our data. At the same time, it's also solidifying the really enormous gains that we saw in December and January. Um, well, we're still, um, uh, almost 30% above where we were in November. Um, that hasn't really changed even with this little wiggle this month. So consumers feeling better than, than last fall, uh, feeling about the same as last month. Yeah, I guess a lot of folks, uh, Joanne, right now, given some of the inflation data we saw in January, CPI and PPI and so on, maybe concerned that maybe inflation's coming back into this economy. Are you seeing that in any of your survey work? No, consumers broadly have um, felt pretty assured that the, the slowdown in, in inflation is going to continue. Um, you know, the, the data that the uh, that these new inflation numbers came from um, comes from consumer reflects consumers' experiences last month. You know, it comes in at a lag, so consumers already noticed those prices around them and any changes in prices. Um, and you know, last year we were seeing quite a bit of volatility, seesawing in inflation expectations in January and February. Exactly the same. Um, so, Joanne, what are we going to be looking for for the preliminary read then for March? Like, what are going to be like the standouts that you're looking at? The main thing we wanted to look for in the months ahead is whether this, you know, 30% gain that we saw in December and January, whether that's actually going to stick, um, given how dramatic those increases were. Uh, you know, so far the February read confirmed that. Let's see if that stays put in in um, in March and April. And you know, as mentioned, inflation expectations absolutely top of mind for consumers. All right, very good. Hey, Joanne, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it, Joanne Shu. Uh, surveys of Consumers Director there at the University of Michigan. We had some data come out there today. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, tune in, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube. 
and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.